Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. We are in a new year, another winter season, and another COVID-19 variant. As Omicron sweeps across the state and the country, we're officially in our third year of reporting on research and data that's unfolding about how this variant and how the pandemic overall continues to make an impact. Omicron, though, is in many ways a very different phase of the pandemic, leaving people again with a lot of questions about what the state is doing policy-wise and also what we should be changing maybe in our own lives with this latest variant. With us on the podcast once again here today, talking about New Mexico's own approach is Acting Secretary of the New Mexico Department of Health, Dr. David Scrace. Thank you for being here. And I'm delighted to be here and uh, good to see you both again. Well, thank you. And and just a quick reminder for people about your background. Um, Dr. Scrace, you're both a primary care physician and geriatrician, and you are leading two state departments, the Human Services Department and the Department of Health, as the, uh, the secretary and acting secretary of those, respectively. Your household name for most New Mexicans at this point, having led the state through more than 600 days of pandemic response. To start, what is the current state of the pandemic in New Mexico? Well, I think the most important factor that I think about every morning when I wake up is the state of our hospitals. We had an increase, as you know, in hospitalizations with Delta that got very high in mid-August and has not really let up at all. There's been some slight upticks and downticks, but the hospitals have been reporting for now five months that they have more patients to take care of than they have space in which to take care of them. And so that continues to be a crisis. And it's why I think we're all praying that everybody's optimistic hope that Omicron will be less severe and that maybe there'll be less hospitalizations. We're all praying that that turns out to be true because we don't really have very much in the way of alternatives if it isn't. Does Omicron at this point account for most of the cases, if not all of our cases now in New Mexico? Yeah, I think we're estimating that um, about 60 percent of cases right now are Omicron. You know, probably that goes up like a significant number of percentage points every day. The actual genomic sequencing takes two weeks, but we have a, a signature test result on one of the machines that we happen to have at DOH. And we're seeing that signature test result, which is not genomic sequencing, but it's, you know, it's indicative of Omicron at about 60, 65% of time as of data at the end of last week. Given how much more transmissible we know Omicron is, and we can get a little bit more into that, but I just wanted to ask very quickly, uh, kind of a yes or no question. Should people be wearing better masks at this point than maybe the cloth masks that they've gotten used to over the last year and a half, two years? You know, it's a really good question, really interesting question. You said it was a yes or no question. So like in my opinion, the answer is yes. I've got a N95 now that I wear when I go out. I've been wearing it since the beginning of the pandemic and the rare, rare times I had to be on an airplane, uh, which was, I think, twice. But uh, I think it's prudent to wear a better mask or more than one mask or get one of those procedure masks and put a cloth mask over it. The more layers, the better. Uh, I think that at this point in time, it is one of the things uh, that do help you from getting COVID. We get a lot of flack of masks don't work. 
they don't guarantee that you won't get COVID. Well, of course they don't. They never did. But they do reduce your risk of contracting the virus by 50%. And with Omicron being so much more infectious, I think higher precautions are warranted. So we've heard that there's both good and bad news about how Omicron is spreading so quickly. The good news or maybe the silver lining is that it appears to be less severe for those it infects and doesn't necessarily seem to impact the lungs quite as severely as previous variants. Can you explain to us more about how specifically Omicron appears to be impacting the body physically? Yeah, another great question and another one that we don't have a lot of good scientific data on. The predominant theory right now is that the binding protein is much stickier, if you will, than previous versions of COVID. So, you know, if you got a little bit of a prior variant of COVID, you might blow your nose and get rid of it. Omicron is very sticky, Uh, may not involve the nose and respiratory passage as much, may involve the mouth and cause more of a sore throat. Um, But in terms of whether it causes more disease or more serious disease, I, the governor asked me that question. The only data we have that we could really rely on is where this started in South Africa. They don't, uh, aren't known for having the best epidemiologic data in the world. And so governor was asking me about this over the weekend and I was looking at data from England and it's still really premature there. I mean, their big shoot up with Omicron really has happened in the past two weeks. They are seeing a little uptick in hospitalizations, but there's always that two-week lag, so we don't know. And deaths, their death counts have been extremely low in England, and we wouldn't expect to see any kind of bump from Omicron for another four weeks. So I, it's interesting. I think up until this point, when a new variant came around like Delta, I think there was a lot of over-reporting of how bad it could be. I think this time with Omicron, the mood maybe of our country has changed. And now there's what I would call overreporting of how mild it might be. I think in both cases, we didn't have enough evidence to say one way or another about that. They said Delta was actually caused much higher hospitalization rates. And they'd seen that in Scotland and in Canada someplace. And that never came to be in New Mexico. We just had a lot of cases and a lot of people ended up in the hospital. It sounds like you're maybe not as confident to come out and say Omicron is milder or does appear to be milder. Is that what is that what I'm getting? Or do you think that it is in some sense less severe? Well, I like everyone else is desperately hoping that it's less severe and that we'll have less hospitalizations. There's some pretty good data for uh, people with two shots of a vaccine. The effectiveness against Omicron is now down in the 30 percent range. But with the booster on board, it's up above 75%. So we know that the vaccine will still, you know, hold its ground and prevent cases with um, Omicron. Uh, I I just don't know. And I don't think there's good enough data to say for sure. Certainly know of a lot of people who've had milder illnesses. The word on the street amongst our hospital partners is they're sending a lot more people home with COVID from the emergency room than they were before. That's a good sign. Uh, Some hospitals across the country are reporting that their oxygen utilization rates have gone down for um, people with Omicron. But remember, it really does take two weeks to know for sure who has what. So it's hard to contemporaneously gather the data. We have to wait and look back retrospectively. But I, the main reason I'm uh, 
think it's a little too early to tell is I just don't think we have solid evidence from a population like the United States, which I would count England in. Uh, we don't have solid evidence about the severity of the disease just yet. And, you know, actually in the United States, we're seeing hospitalization rates. I think I read over the weekend higher than ever before in the pandemic. Well, that, that gives me pause that U.S. statistic. You mentioned how hospitals are sending more people home from the emergency rooms is kind of the anecdotal thing that we're hearing now about Omicron. With that in mind, are we seeing more people who are vaccinated and boosted getting Omicron, but maybe having a milder go of it? Too early to tell. It's too early to tell that because remember, we started seeing our fate, our first cases in mid, uh, mid-December. So we just won't know. Uh, for another probably three or four weeks, what, what, how that stacks up. Uh, we're certainly seeing a lot more Omicron cases, just in an unbelievable number. We've had three days in a row uh, that were higher than any days ever in the prior history of the pandemic with 3,000 and 4,000 case per day case rates. And so We certainly do know that it's infectious, that we know, and a lot more infectious. I know that people see these high case numbers, and there are a couple of ways you can maybe interpret that data. One is, of course, concern, and we've seen that play out in schools that opted to go virtual after Christmas break, for instance, keeping kids home longer. But given how rapidly this virus is spreading and more and more people are getting infected with the virus and getting boosters, can this at all be a good thing insofar as more people are developing immunities? We know that you do develop some immunity from prior COVID infections. We know it's about one sixth, uh, one over six uh, times as effective as getting the vaccines. And we also know that we've got thousands and thousands, probably up around 10,000 people who've been reinfected with COVID now again. And so it's not a complete sort of immunity. And so the real question about whether a lot more people getting cases bodes well for the future really depends on what that next mutation of the virus looks like. And does the immunity that so many people are going to get from Omicron confer immunity on the next variant? And of course, we can never know in the future how that's going to pan out. But we're seeing now that people who've had Delta, uh, the Delta variant, Uh, getting reinfected with Omicron. Small numbers still, but that's starting to happen. So I think that one of the problems we have with thinking about coronavirus is we think of it as a single thing. And our experience of it has actually been, depending on how you count, three or four completely different viruses in a way in terms of all the statistics that go with them in terms of hospitalization rates and death rates and the like. And so I try to look not so much at case rates, but at hospitalization rates. And I try to think of each new variant as, if you will, a new pandemic. A lot that we've learned from the previous variants, but we have to start over. And so typically during the first four weeks or so of a new variant, I'm I'm not a very good interview uh, prospect for you because I'm always saying we just don't have enough data to know for sure just yet. When do you expect to hear more back or to maybe have some more of those answers? When we start seeing death rates from the United Kingdom uh, that are six weeks out from the peak of Omicron there, I think that will be the earliest and most reliable information we'll get. And I think we're three weeks out from seeing that. 
data. Let's switch gears and talk about schools a little bit. There are new CDC quarantine guidelines out there with Omicron. I heard hospital leaders say they've implemented the new CDC quarantine guidelines of five days reduced from 10. So more people can go back to work sooner if they're not symptomatic. We know there's been a real push to keep kids in class. Are children at higher risk now with Omicron? There's a little bit of evidence from the United States the kids zero to four are more likely to be hospitalized with Omicron than they have with previous variants. Again, very preliminary. I think there are concerns about whether there's a higher risk of kids going to school or there's a lower risk. You know, if, if a child's in school and the school's good about enforcing masking and six foot distancing, it probably actually is safer than going to the playground, you know, at in their neighborhood. And so in our modeling in the past, we found kids in school to be safer than kids, uh, you know, out in the community. So that's one of the key pieces of data I think about most. I'm absolutely 100% in agreement that having kids in school is better. I also think though, that as we've seen throughout the pandemic, you know, different counties have different case rates and hospitalization rates. And so having a statewide approach isn't always preferable. And having schools decide based on what's going on in their local communities, I think works better. I wish we had more community level action on things. The other thing I would say, too, is I think what we're going to see with Omicron is schools closing mainly because of staff and teacher shortages, because so many teachers and staff have Omicron, not so much that the kids do. And that's been the experience in other places like New York and Uh, where school closures were really precipitated by just simply not having enough staff or bus drivers or whatever it was, teachers to carry out the day's activities. This is a question related to testing. Um, We know that in basically the last year and a half, two years, PCR tests have been really the big thing that we've all relied on to uh, detect cases. The gold standard. Right, right. The gold standard and antigen testing or what's more commonly seen in the sort of over-the-counter tests, those are the ones that have picked up a lot more steam in the recent months, especially in the idea of uh, rapid testing to know immediately right then and there whether or not you may be contagious. So for context, there was this recent discussion on uh, CBS Mornings, and we can put a link in our uh, show notes to this, um, about how sensitive the PCR tests are. And this doctor was essentially making a sort of push that, you know, we should be really leaning a lot more on rapid testing and antigen testing than PCR testing because PCR testing is so sensitive. Maybe we're catching somebody at the end of an infectious period and it could be a long time after they were contagious. And what we need to really answer is the question of what do we know now? Is this person transmissible? And a rapid test should be able to do that. So I guess with all of that in mind, what is your thought? Should we be moving more towards these rapid tests instead of leaning on PCR so heavily here? Yeah, I think yes. And I think we are. Um, I would say, though, one PCR does not equal one rapid test. The PCR is still the gold standard. I think of rapid tests as the perfect test for things like uh, test to stay at schools, where we do a test on day one, three, and five after someone's been exposed to a positive classmate. I think I've done a little bit of home rapid testing just so I could be familiar with it. And I think of it as uh, if I have a reason to do it, I'm going to do it today 
and either tomorrow or the next day. And, and the reason is because the PCR test, as you pointed out, is extraordinarily sensitive. They, it finds like the, even a shred of an old non-infectious COVID particle, rapid test, not as, uh, as sensitive. On the other hand, the false positive rate is extremely low with all kinds of testing. And so I think if you're like our family got together for um, a vacation in, in Park City, Utah last week, and everybody had, we all agreed that we'd get either one PCR test or two rapid tests before we got there. And everyone uh, got tested when they got home. And, and my, we have a bunch of business school grad kids. So they had a spreadsheet online and you went in and you put your test results. And, and so, you know, some folks got the PCR, some folks got the two rapid home tests. Like everybody took a different approach, but we were all comfortable. No one had COVID at any time during it. So I think they're going to become more and more interchangeable. And the main reason is if you've ever gone to get a PCR test, that's like a serious time commitment, right? Like finding one, making the appointment, going there, waiting in line. But nonetheless, the amount of time it takes. And I was one of the people in our family who decided I'm just going to get the PCR. So it was a, it was a, a an operation, you know, that kind of make it happen. So I believe that somewhere down the line, there'll be an even more inexpensive test on the order of, you know, a couple of dollars maybe. And uh, I think this is part of that evolution. If we can get enough of these tests to the state where people can start taking like two tests, you know, to get the same basic reliability, I think we will rapidly gravitate to home testing. Now, of course, all those test positivity rates will go through the roof because, you know, we're not getting all those negative home tests into our system. But uh, uh, I think that's the direction we're headed. I think it's going to help a lot. Uh, my family is doing it. Uh, people in my household that I live in got rapid tests who couldn't get free from work to do the PCR. And then I think lastly, we do have 400,000 home tests on the way uh, being shipped here to New Mexico that should arrive this week. And we're working on a distribution plan of how to distribute those in communities um, to get more home testing. We know this week is very tough and a lot of people cannot find testing. Quick follow-up on that though. Bottom line, how can you best tell whether or not you're infectious? Like if you're sick, does symptomatic equal, oh, I'm probably infectious and contagious. And then if I feel okay and haven't had a fever, you're probably good. No, I, you, I had you for the first part. If you're symptomatic, okay. if you're symptomatic, uh, then you should stay home. And it doesn't matter if you have RSV or the common gold or, you know, at this point in time, why go to work and infect other people? If you feel just fine, you know, we're still running 20 to 25% of all our cases are in, in folks with no symptoms at all. And I'm just taking the general population now. Maybe your question was just about people with COVID, but if you're feeling just fine, uh, but you've been exposed or somebody you're living with somebody who has um, COVID, even though you're trying to stay separate, well, you know, it's probably worth getting the test anyway. I think you can rely on symptoms to make a decision to stay home, but I don't think we should be relying on the absence of system 
symptoms to uh, make a decision to go out. What would you say to uh, people, Dr. Scrace? And I've heard this, you know, among the public as well. I'm going to get sick either way, either side effects from the vaccine booster or Omicron. So just get it over with. Let me get Omicron so I can develop immunity against the virus and be done with it. What would you say to people who have that thought process? Give me one second. I just want to do some real quick math. Yeah. So um, the death rate from COVID in general is 1.6%. And that would be the equivalent of having 64 U.S. flights per day crash. That's a 1.6% of U.S. flights is 64 flights. So let me ask you this. If all of a sudden every day there were 64 plane crashes a day, would you cancel your upcoming plane trip? Or would you just take it and go, you know, it's a really low percentage chance, only 1.6%. I think most people would be horrified. There would be this giant media firestorm and no one would fly in an airplane. And But we're talking about the exactly the same number. So, but I mean, that it's the same exact odds. And so I, I am... I am kind of mystified on the people who say that, because if, you know, if you get hospitalized, it's not, you know, 5% of you that gets hospitalized, it's 100%. If you die, it's not 1.6% of you that dies, it's 100% of you. And so I don't understand how people are figuring these statistics. Now, on the other hand, if you have a very mild illness, you're right. And uh, if you die, then there's no one around to warn other people away from that point of view. Well, Dr. Scrace, thank you so much for being here. We know you're a busy man and got to get off to another meeting. Um, we appreciate you being here and going to be continuing to watch out for what Omicron does and how the state is responding, which is always evolving on both fronts is what it seems. Yeah, it is. And, and we really appreciate your support, getting the word out to people. So valuable to the effort. And that one biggest challenge of communication is something that uh, uh, we continue to rely heavily on you to to support us and partner with us and ask us those tough questions too. President Biden on Thursday announced the deployment of federal medical teams to six states, including New Mexico, as part of the administration's strategy to address the surge in COVID-19 infections. We also mentioned earlier in the episode some recent changes to the CDC's guidelines for isolation after testing positive for the virus. And the CDC moved from a 10-day to a five-day isolation period more recently, arguing that people aren't as likely to transmit the virus after about five days from a positive test, especially when continuing to wear one of those tight-fitted masks. Now, the aim of the policy, in part, was to help get people back to work or school more quickly after a positive test. And just over two weeks after the guidelines went in place, the New Mexico Public Education Department finally decided to adopt those rules last Wednesday. New Mexico is one of the few states also participating in the CDC-led test-to-stay program, where kids who've been exposed to the virus can test to avoid quarantines, but there's also a national testing shortage, as we talked about in today's episode. As Dr. Scrace mentioned, the state is also getting 400,000 at-home tests to be distributed to New Mexicans across the state. Now, thanks again to Dr. Scrace for joining us on this podcast here once again. Also to note, today, Tuesday, January 18th, or the day this episode premieres, it marks the beginning of another legislative session for New Mexico lawmakers at the Roundhouse in Santa Fe. It's a 30-day session this year. We expect there 
there to be some legislation related to COVID-19. And KRQE will, of course, be covering that session along the way on air and online on KRQE.com, where we'll have live streams and other kind of continued coverage. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback. I'm Chris.McKee at KRQE.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at TV. And I'm Gabrielle.Burkhart at KRQE.com and GBurkNM on Twitter. If you like the show, share it with a friend and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also visit our website for continued coverage on every episode we've had up to this point, krqe.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.